This is Brandon M. Crooker, and you're listening to the Apostolic Theory Podcast. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Pentecostal Periodical Magazine, a 501c3 ministry with writers who believe and live apostolic doctrine. A few writers include Kelly Nix, Scott Phillips, Samantha Thrash, Neil Purcell, Larry Chocklin, Jeff Arnold, and more. You can subscribe at www.pentecostalperiodical.com. If you would like to join our writing team or would like to make a donation, email us at info at pentecostalperiodical.com. Today we have a very special guest with us. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, I got this book uh, when I first became aware of it. Um, and it has been a tremendous resource. Um, and I think that anybody who listens to this podcast episode, if you have not bought the book that we're going to talk about today, I encourage you strongly to get yourself a copy. Um, it's available on uh, Amazon and through the Pentecostal Publishing House. Um, but our, our guest today is the author of this book, Church Work. Uh, his name is, is Pastor Rodney Shaw, an exceptional minister of the gospel. Um, so I'm very excited about this specific episode, if you couldn't tell. Um, why don't you just introduce yourself, uh, Pastor Shaw, to the, to the audience. Tell them a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and what God's doing in your area. Oh, sure. Well, thank you for uh, having me on. I appreciate the time, and uh, I enjoy the conversation. So uh, much much appreciation for the opportunity. Uh, of course, as you introduced me, my name is Rodney Shaw. I pastor New Life Austin in Austin, Texas, and um, I've uh, been a senior pastor here for a little over 10 years, and I uh, have served at the church since the church was established uh, uh, 30 years ago. So I've been at New Life since the beginning. And I've uh, been just serving here in Austin. Uh, I'm married. My wife and I, uh, of course, work uh, here closely together in the church. We have two adult children. Uh, our daughter is married. We have a son-in-law. And we have a dog. So uh, we love to uh, drink coffee and hike. So that's about it. That's what we do. <laughs> Amen. Uh, it's exciting to be able to to hear about the different interests and, and things that uh, various ministers of the gospel do and and that's one of the things this podcast has sort of sort of done is uh sort of opened the eyes of we really are all so different and so unique in the things that we enjoy doing and so it's just incredible um but uh what i'd like to start off with is church work i've actually got a copy right here um what what inspired you uh, to write this book? What, wh- where did the book come from? What compelled you to write it? Well, uh, we could actually spend the entire conversation on this. Uh, I'll try to uh, make it as concise as possible. Uh, several things, actually. I was doing a lot of leadership development type teaching uh, there at our local church over the years and doing a lot of ministry development outside our church, uh, minister training seminars, church leadership retreats. And uh, so I was I was kind of buried in the uh, church leadership uh, genre out there. And so I was very, you know, becoming very conversant with a lot of the stuff, a lot of the ideas out there. But that was really layered on top of some other things that I think were probably more influential, and that is, I uh, was I served as an assistant pastor for 17 years here at New Life Austin before I became a senior pastor. And uh, as I began processing and thinking about leadership, you know, you go to conferences and uh, everything seems to be targeted uh, towards senior pastors. Uh, even in the leadership genres out there, you know, everything's targeted towards the senior pastor or the top executive, top CEO. And so I, I would oftentimes walk away from either reading a book or attending a conference wondering, well, what, what about the rest of us? What about, what do we do? What mm. does success look like for us? What does leadership look like for wow. us? Uh, 
And so I began asking these kinds of questions. And quite honestly, I got really burned out on all the books because, you know, I, I was keeping up, you know, with all the literature and it just sounded like everything was repackaged. Everyone was kind of saying the same thing, repackaging it. And then the church people were doing the same thing. You know, all the uh, mega church pastors were, you know, putting out their leadership books. There's this whole group of books out there. I don't really know what they're called, but they're kind of leadership. They're kind of church growth. They're just churchy kind of things. And, you know, I finally just stopped reading all that stuff because I felt like I was just reading repackaged stuff. And so I really got to drilling down into that and wondering, okay, how did the rest of us lead? Uh, we had a leadership team at our church that was very capable, very competent. And many of these people in our local church had the responsibilities equivalent to what a, a pastor of a small church would have. And yet they were not, you know, considered pastor, senior pastor, whatever. And so I really got to thinking about what are universal principles of leadership and how does that work with the average person, the typical person? And then I sort of came to these conclusions that, well, whatever works for those people work for top leaders also. In other words, there's not a separate set of rules. There's not a separate set of leadership concepts, but all of this works together for whoever. So good leadership principles are going to work. They're going to work for a youth pastor, for a children's ministry director, for the director of guest services, equally as much as they're going to work for a senior pastor. And so and that's kind of the background where the book came from. You know, there's really two sort of approaches to nonfiction. One is research, a research-oriented book. And the other is an experience-oriented book. Now, if you read my book, of course, I reference a lot of other writers and things, but um, you probably noticed, too, on purpose, I don't have any footnotes in the book. Uh, if I quote someone, I'll tell you how I quoted because I want to give credit to them. But I don't have any footnotes in the book because the book is not a research book. The book is an experience book. And so in the book, I share, and obviously I'm not the only one that's had these thoughts before, but... In the book, I share my thoughts, my conclusions that really came from those years in ministry, leading, training, uh, cutting out ministry. And so that's that's sort of where the book came from. Wow, that's that's incredible. How long did it how long did it take you to to write this book? That's sort of like asking how long did it take to write a sermon? Um You can put a sermon together in an hour or two, but it, it takes a lifetime to um, create the context for that. I, uh, When I became senior pastor, which was 10 years ago, uh, well, it's been, no, it's been longer than that now. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to stop and do all the math. Uh, anyway, it's been a long time ago. Um, when I became senior pastor, um, I had this manuscript sitting on my desk. I had written it many years ago. Uh, again, I was teaching this stuff. I was teaching it in various places, various contexts. But when I became senior pastor, I got, of course, I got buried in that work. We, it was a very challenging season for a lot of reasons. And I'll just put the book. Finally, I moved the book manuscript from my desk to my closet in my office. I just put it up because I didn't have time. It really, it, it was, it, I had a full-length manuscript, but it really wasn't done. It wasn't ready. Well, about a year and a half ago, two years ago maybe, I decided, you know, if I'm ever going to do this, I need to do it or I need to throw it away. So I went and picked it back up. And as I began reading through it, uh, I was both pleasantly surprised and I was horrified at the same time. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised because uh, I had thankfully documented a lot of my core leadership thoughts. And not just leadership, but of course, as you know, the third of the book is on followership. And so I had sort of documented these sort of main fundamentals that I kind of aspired to, but I was horrified when I read back through it and uh, the tone of the book, the just overall approach, I was like, you know, I'm thankful I didn't try to publish this. And so after having been a senior pastor now for more than a decade, I went back through and edited the book again, added some fresh sort of perspectives from a, from a different viewpoint and uh, kind of crunched it out. So the last writing of the book probably took me nine months, maybe a year, uh, but that was the last writing. I already had, a, like I said, the rough manuscript. And so, I mean, along that same vein, um, if you haven't talked about it before, uh, what did the process of writing your book look like for you? Because 
there's a lot of uh, apostolic authors or people that are dabbling in, in trying to attain um, putting out apostolic content and that listen to this podcast. Um, so what did, what did your, what did that writing process look like for you? Well, I want to answer that in a couple ways. First of all, just from a writing standpoint, um, this was not my first book. I had two other books before this that were very different books, um, very different style books. They're inspirational type, devotional type books. But nonetheless, I've written two other books, but also I have edited several magazines, uh, district magazines, and then I'm uh, currently the co-editor of the Forward Magazine, which is uh, the minister's magazine for the United Pentecostal Church in North America. So I, I have, over the years, written quite a bit, uh, and other projects, articles, uh, you know, published Bible lessons, uh, symposium papers. So writing's been a part of my ministry for a long time. So I have experience with writing and experience with edit, being edited, uh, which I very much welcome. Um, and so this, this, I think all of that experience was very helpful, uh, because sometimes it's, you know, people want to write a book and it's the first really thing they've written. And it's a very daunting process, one, to convert your thoughts in a coherent way. Uh, but not only that, to do it effectively, um, and then to get your manuscript back with a bunch of red ink on it, you know, it can hurt your feelings. It really can. Um, but I become accustomed to that process. And so I think that served me well. And I think, too, over the years, having uh, – I have probably – well, I have over 100 articles probably that have been published, again, in various places. So I have somewhat of an audience out there already. Um, I have no idea how much, <laughs> but there, there's somewhat of an audience out there. So I didn't, I didn't start from scratch. So I think that helped a lot. I think it really helped a whole lot. And then uh, – um, that the process of actual the mechanics of writing, I would just underscore the the uh, the basic you know fundamentals of writing. You know, obviously, grammar, house rules. If you're going to get published by someone, find out what their house rules are. Use their house rules. That way, you don't you know have to have all that taken care of in editing. But the main thing, and those that have studied writing have read this, and I will underscore it over and over again: rewriting. Write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Um, it's not an exaggeration to say that I rewrote those chapters probably 20 times. Um, rewrite. If, if, if you don't rewrite, you're going to miss an opportunity to make your work better. Not only rewrite, but when you think you've hit a wall or maybe when you think you've nailed it and you've just knocked it out of the park, the best thing you can do is put the manuscript down and let it set for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, then pick it back up and read through it again with a fresh set of eyes, fresh perspective. And that generally sheds a lot of light. Not only that, but before, before uh, you send, you know, your manuscript off to be edited by whoever's going to publish it, Find some editors of your own. Find some critics. Um, you know, my poor wife had to read that thing so many times. I asked her to read it and read it and read it and read it. Um, I had friends that I asked to read it. Um, and some of the book, not all of it, of course, by any stretch, but probably a handful of the article or chapters in there I had written in some form or another as an article format in some publication somewhere. So some of them were fair in fairly good shape but i would just underscore rewriting rewriting is extremely critical to the process i would agree with that and you know and that that's that's probably the hardest part is is for me receiving your manuscript back and having it feels like it's just been destroyed and torn apart and it's like oh what but then you consider first of all the language you're conveying, what it sounds like, what it would make, how the spirit that you want to convey in your text and maybe what it sounds like and how, you know, you, you, you want to be able to be willing to, to change that. Uh, I've had, I've helped people edit their books and 
you know, they just are not interested in changing it at all. And it's like, nobody's going to want to buy your book if you don't change it. It's like, <laughs> but uh, let's dig right into your book now. Um, let's do it. I, I read through it several times. I mean, and it has been a blessing to, to me uh, and, you know, those my personal uh, leadership and my followership as well. So in your book, you talk a lot about the leadership roles and you talk a lot about followership and the role that, that they have, but you talk about how they both work together. Would you uh, just dig a little bit deeper into that for the audience and, and kind of explain how they, how they work together? Yeah, you know, you have to have leadership and followership working together. I talk about that in the book extensively. But there's this concept that I mentioned in one of the chapters, uh, and I got this term actually from Max Dupree, who I, I love his books. Uh, he used the term roving leader, roving leader. And a roving leader, according to Max Dupree, is not a hierarchical leader. It's not a person that has the title of leader. It's a person in a given situation who steps into the role of leader. So use the example of a pastor. I'm a pastor. Well, I may go to an event that is being led by one of the ministries of our church. Let's say I go to a men's meeting. Well, when I go into that men's meeting, I have a choice. Am I going to usurp the authority of my men's leader and become the leader in that environment? Or am I going to step back and let that leader lead? In that environment, then, I become a follower. And it's important for leaders to both know when to step back and let a, another leader, who may not even be a hierarchical leader, lead, but also when, when in, you're in a follower role, when to know when it's your turn to step up and lead and not hide behind followership and, and not do what you're called to do and not bring what you have to the table uh, and, and allow your gifts to be used. And so that roving leadership, I think, is very important. But that aside, you still have leaders and followers. And being able to uh, lead and follow working together um, is extremely important because I, I outlined this in the, in the chapters on followership, but if you're a strong leader and you're not the top leader, then that means you're going to have to learn how to function as a follower in your organization. And I'll never forget, there was a particular situation where I was having difficulty with a leader uh, who was on our leadership team. And this individual was very creative, very gifted, uh, very sharp, but was constantly in conflict with people, and including me, just constantly in conflict. And when I would confront the individual, more than once the individual told me, this was their explanation, I am a strong leader. And my response to that is, well, that's the problem. You need to learn how to be an effective follower. Because when followership is needed, bringing strong leadership skills to the table doesn't help very much. And so being able to part, if, if you're in a followership role, being able to partner with a leader and accomplish a shared mission, a shared vision, the shared task that God led you to do, and sort of get rid of this idea that the leaders are the important people they're the ones that are called. They're the ones that are anointed. They're the ones that do everything. And the followers are just kind of this, you know, addendum. Get rid of that thinking and recognize that if God's called a leader to do something and that, and if that something is bigger than what that leader can do, then it also follows that God is going to call others to partner with that leader, followers who are going to step alongside that leader, and they're going to work together. And so if we don't have both of these dynamics working in our organizations, then it becomes very difficult, and this is one of the challenges uh, with sort of the contemporary leadership uh, culture that's out there. Everyone is being pushed to be a leader. Well, if we all show up and we're all the leader, we're going to get anything done because no one is going to get behind the leader and support the leader. And so I think that uh, understanding that this – and it's not just church work. This is a dynamic anywhere – that we partner together, and sometimes I lead, sometimes I follow, but it does take both to get things done. Absolutely. 
and that'll sort of flow in nicely to the um, what you refer to as the Acts uh, 6 model of ministry. Um, so what does that look like biblically? I think it's rooted very deeply in our Pentecostal theology. Um, what is the, the, the New Testament model is that God wants to use everyone. And it is a fallacy that what God wants to do is only resting on the shoulders of a few gifts God has given to the church. Um, I think that is a disservice to the church for us to think that way. There was a, a gentleman who pastored a First Baptist Church here in Austin, Texas, a guy named Carlisle Marty. And he wrote one of his books. He said, no professional clergy can do what the church is called to do. No professional clergy can do what the church is called to do. I think not only is it a leadership fallacy, I think it is theologically false to say that the success of the church rests on one particular gifting or even four or five different giftings. What God wants to do is bigger than the church. Look at our core theology. Our core theology is, of course, for conversion, revival, of course, is rooted in the outpouring of the Spirit. In Joel chapter 2, as quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, what is it? In the last days, God's going to pour out his Spirit on who? He's going to pour it out on all flesh, sons and daughters, old men, young men, servants, handmaids. It's not just this thing that falls on a class of people, the special people, the leaders, the pastors, past, you know, evangelists. Pro- no, it's all God's people. And this is the key, I think, to to having a, a vibrant a vibrant revival. Now, you see this get fleshed out very specifically in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, of course, they're having, you know, great revival there in Jerusalem. It's a very interesting right. uh, setting because... The Jews would come to the to the pilgrimage feast back to Jerusalem three times a year. Two of these feasts were Passover and Pentecost. And so all the males from wherever they lived would travel to Jerusalem. The population would swell to sometimes ten times maybe what it generally was. And so you have just you have total chaos. People coming back to Jerusalem from all around the Mediterranean world uh, for Passover. Well, Pentecost is only 50 days later, so what would happen, many of them would not go back home if they lived a long distance. They would just stay. So they would stay in, in Jerusalem from Passover to Pentecost, that extra 50 days. So you can just imagine the bustling streets of Jerusalem, all these people just crowding around. And this is the context, the local context, where the spirits poured out. I mean, God knows exactly what he's doing. Right. And so this is what's going on. There's all these people. Well, a lot of these people now are stranded in Jerusalem. The Spirit's been poured out. They've already been there 50 days. And so they're from all over the place. Well, you can see the church has a crisis on its hand now. And you begin to see this crisis begin to unfold in Acts chapter 6. The Grecian widows, well, who are they? They're the ones that have come from the Mediterranean world. They have traveled. They're, they're, they're Grecian, so... They're either Jews living in the Greek world or they're, they're proselytes to Judaism. Whatever the case, they have come back to Passover and Pentecost. They've been filled with the Spirit. Now they're staying there, and there's not enough food for everybody. This is when the church sells their possessions. They make everything common because they literally have this humanitarian crisis going on. Well, long story short, the Grecian widows feel like they're being cheated at the daily administration. When the bread's being handed out, they feel like they're not getting enough. Well, the apostles, that, that's the background. The apostles, now this is, to me, this is both exciting and critical. The apostles decide they can't take care of this humanitarian stuff and continue in their work as apostles, which they specifically identify as praying and being given to the word. That's what they identify as their work. The apostles, therefore, notice how, how intentional this is. The apostles don't appoint seven men. The apostles tell the church, y'all point to seven men. You go select seven men. The apostles didn't even select them. So in other words, the apostles are empowering the church to step up and do the work of ministry. The church 
appoint seven men. The qualifications are pretty stiff. They have to be filled with the Spirit. They have to be full of faith. They have to have a good report. But they are specifically tasked with taking care of these widows and these needs every day. Now, what's the obvious conclusion? The obvious conclusion is what these seven men are doing is not considered to be the same work as what the apostles are doing. It's entirely different. It is important, but it is different. It is not the, the special work of giving themselves to prayer and of being in the Word. They have this very different path. Now, these guys, uh, we don't know exactly what they did. Some think this may be the establishment of the office of deacon. I don't, we don't know for sure. But they clearly have a job to relieve the apostles of menial administrative things so the apostles can be given to the word and prayer. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. The two greatest revivals in the book of Acts happen at the hands of two of these men who are waiting on tables, not the hands of the apostles. That's fascinating to me. I mean, Stephen, think about Stephen. Stephen is one of these seven, and Stephen gets martyred preaching in Jerusalem. Why didn't Peter get martyred preaching in Jerusalem? Why didn't James get martyred preaching in Jerusalem? For that matter, why didn't Paul ultimately get martyred preaching in Jerusalem? Stephen is preaching. This is my conclusion. It may be wrong. We'll find out when we get to heaven. (laughs) My conclusion is that Stephen is either preaching something the apostles were not preaching, or he's preaching it with an authority they were not preaching it with. He's having results they are not having. As a result, the attention is drawn to him. He winds up getting martyred. As a result of his martyr, the gospel is spread throughout the region as a result of this man who was not called to be an apostle. He was called to wait on tables. The second man, the second man, Philip. Now, later on in Acts, he's considered and identified as Philip the Evangelist, which to me points out the reality that if you're faithful in what God gives to you, God will open up other opportunities for you. But this man that's called to wait on tables, he carries the gospel. He is the one that that jumps out of the, 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 the Jewish restrictions that the church had placed on themselves. He's the one. It's not an apostle that has the vision to carry the gospel outside of the Jewish community. It's Philip, the man who waits on tables. He's the one that gets the vision that, hey, God can do something here. God can do something outside of us. And so the Acts 6 model of ministry is that God has gifting for everyone, and God uses everyone. And in ministry, even what we would consider, you know, we, we throw this term apostolic on everything, but even this label that we throw on things, apostolic, God can use people in miracles and reaching the lost and preaching the gospel. He can use people that are, that are gifted and waiting on tables to do that. And so the point is, Even without those two big revivals, the apostles are unable to do what God has called them to do unless these other men step up and do what God's called them to do. So the story of the book of Acts is a story of the entire church engaging in what God's called them to do. And when everyone does that, then we see the results. We have a worldwide revival. Wow. That is good. (laughs) That is powerful. It's good stuff. If the church would get a hold of that, that right there. Man, we I'm ready for it. Yeah. I think we're Amen. ready I think for we it. Are. Praise God. You so you have this portion of the book that's dedicated uh, and I believe you titled it The Politics of Sharing. And in it you have some a, a unique perspective on church politics uh in the way that that works in the context of the church work and the rest of the book. Uh, Would you just share a little bit about that with us? Sure, the politics of sharing. Um, You know, it's been said that uh, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there is politics. Uh, I kind of use that that chapter in the book. I called it that to kind of be thought-provoking. You know, if you're going to write effectively, you need to provoke people every once in a while, but provoke them in a good way. Um, We generally think of politics in a bad way. Um, you know, you think of politics, you think of, you know, corrupt politicians, or you think about people 
using their position to garner favor and all. That's not really the purest meaning of the word. Um, politics, from the Greek word polis, the polis was the, uh, the, the, the public square. That's where people did their public discourse um, in a community. That's where um, you know, we referred to the ongoing dialogue between citizens, the citizenry, and how they got along together. Uh, the equivalent Latin word is civitas, which is where we get civics from. Um, and so when I say the politics of sharing, I'm referring to the reality of if we live together in a community, if we live in a polis, a civitas, if we live together in community, there's this ongoing negotiation and conversation and dialogue that goes on. And the point of the chapter is to point out that the nature of teamwork is sharing. The nature of teamwork is sharing. And so that's why I call that chapter the politics of sharing. Well, there's a way you can share that's healthy, and there's a way you can share that's unhealthy. And so I talk about some healthy ways that we share. If you think about this, uh, I think it really is true that the essence of teamwork is sharing. Uh, in a church, think about this. If you're on a ministry team, you share the same vision. You share the same, you share the same facility, the same building. Uh, you share the same volunteer pool. You share the same budget. I mean, there's only so many um, fundraising dollars in a church. You share the same revival. Uh, I would make the argument you share a same, you share a same, a same shared grace, anointing, gifting that God would place on a place. In other words, you share everything. I mean, uh, if, if your church has a church van, if you share that church van, if you have, you know, projectors that you use, you share those projectors, you share the rooms in the church. And so the point was, is that we share as a, as a consequence of that, there, it is incumbent upon all the members of a ministry team to be good stewards of everything we share. So in other words, I have to, if I'm on a ministry team, I can't just have the welfare of my ministry at the forefront. I have to think about the well-being of the entire team. I have to think about the well-being of, okay, if I'm going to... ...into my ministry, or am I willing to share this gifting with another ministry who may need, may need it more? Same thing, you know, very simple example, but same thing with a date on the calendar. Two ministries want to have this, uh, an event on the same day. Well, you share that calendar. You've got to figure out how to navigate, how to negotiate that. And so in that part of the book, chapter uh, part three, there's a lot of just really, really practical, how do you get on in church work? Sharing people, sharing dollars, sharing resources, um, sharing the affirmation of your senior leader. I mean, if you're on a leadership team, and you're looking to say a pastor is the leader, you share the affirmation of that leader. You share the goodwill of that leader. You share the, the, the generosity of that leader. You've got to share that with each other. And so uh, I think teamwork really is sharing. And I just like, I, I really appreciate the way that you talk about it in the book and the way that you shared it even, even now. Um, you know, because I think we put ourselves in a dangerous place and and spiritually when we have this worldly mentality of looking out for number one, whether it's, you know, in any position of ministry, music, preaching, pastoring, van, bus ministry, whatever it is, you know, if we're always looking out for ourselves and not each other, you know, it puts us in precarious situations. Uh, but that 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 can sort of usher us right into the next portion where you you talk about serving sideways, and I just thought that this was a tremendous concept that I wish there was a way that we could get more light on it and, and more uh, promotion on it because it's it's that powerful. Um, so just share with us what what you refer to as sharing. Uh, sorry, as uh, serving sideways and, and what that means and what that looks like. Yeah, well, um, at the Last Supper, if you read the passage and the account of the Last Supper, 
The disciples have gone ahead. Jesus sent them ahead to borrow a room. They're not from Jerusalem. They've gone to Jerusalem. It's the last time there Jesus is going to be crucified. But they're not from Jerusalem. These are all redneck hillbillies. They're from Galilee. So they're, they're a long ways from home. Just like I mentioned earlier, those festivals, that, you know, they're traveling to Jerusalem. They're going to have Passover. And so they have to borrow a room. They have to go find a place. So the disciples go and they find this place. It's a borrowed room. And they get the room and they're all having dinner. Now, we've all heard, we know the, the common tradition of, of, you know, in the ancient Middle East, of, you know, people washing feet when they go in a room because they travel on dusty roads. Most of them are walking. They're not traveling even by animal. They're walking. Their feet are dirty. And um, so it was customary to have some water by the door. You know, you could wash your feet. Um, if there were a host uh, who were wealthy, the host would have a servant who would do that. But it, it was it was really seen as a menial task because, you know, it was it was not even lawful for a Jew to compel another Jew to wash feet. Uh, it, it was just, it wasn't a fun thing. And so uh, that was their tradition. Now, in those traditions as well, when they would eat, they didn't eat at a, 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 an elevated table like we did. It was more, you know, sort of uh, Oriental-type customs where there would be a table low on the ground, and they would be lying on their sides around that table. So they're almost, you know, the Bible talks about them reclining at dinner. Well, they're lying, basically they're lying down on the floor on their sides, with a table that's, you know, really short to the ground. That means that, that no one's head is very far from someone else's feet around that table. And so they're all piled in around the table, eating in kind of this, you know, way that they probably wouldn't otherwise. But at the same time, they're having an argument about who's going to be the greatest. If you were to translate that into today's vocabulary, they're arguing about who's going to be the leader. That's what they're arguing about. Who is going to be the leader? Now, since they borrowed the room, no one felt responsible to make sure everyone's feet was washed. And none of them would dare ask of washing feet because that would immediately be a demotion. Because the argument is who's going to be the greatest. Now, Jesus, seeing all of this, observing all of this, simply gets up, he goes and grabs a towel, wraps it around him, gets a basin of water. So the water's there, the towel's there. They've been there. Just no one would take them. Jesus takes them, and he goes around and begins washing their feet. Now, I don't think the purpose that Jesus was doing this was to instill a ritual that would later be known as foot washing. Now, whether a person practiced that or not is inconsequential. It's not my point. The reason... Jesus got up and washed their feet because their feet were dirty. That's why he did it. Those people had a need, and Jesus was meeting the need. We all know the situation when he gets to Simon Peter. Peter's like, oh, no, you're not washing me. No, sir, you're not going to do that. And Jesus tells Peter, he says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you can't have any part in me. Now, that scripture has often been misused to say that if you don't do foot washing, you can't have any part in the Lord. But that's not what the Lord said. The Lord said if he didn't wash Peter's feet, you don't have a place in him. So the Lord's not here to wash our feet. So that, that doesn't work out. So this is a very personal thing between Jesus and Peter. And, and Jesus is saying, if I don't wash your feet, we have no, no relationship. What Jesus was saying is, a leader who does not serve his followers cannot have an intimate relationship with them. Wow. A leader who does not serve his followers does not have, cannot have an intimate relationship with him. And then, of course, Peter says, well, Lord, not just my feet, but wash all. And the Lord's like, no, 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 that's good. I'll just wash your feet. Now, here's where, here's where the, the whole point comes in right here. When Jesus is done, he said, okay, if, if I am your Lord, Lord have washed your feet. This is where the curveball comes. You think he would say, then you ought to wash my feet. That's not what he says. He says, if I, your Lord, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, stop arguing about who's going to be the boss and who's going to be the leader and just serve each other. Wow. 
there's a quote in the book that I borrowed from someone else. And there's a guy who said, he said, the only way I know to influence people is to love and serve them. Everything else is just politics. Um, the idea of, of sideways, being a sideways servant is it's natural for a leader to serve his followers because he gets a benefit from it. Now, not all leaders serve their followers, but they should. But it's really not a hard thing because you get, you get reciprocity out of that. If you serve people that you're leading, you make them better, you help them. serving a leader because you get benefit so when a follower serves a leader a follower then gains favor with the leader when a follower serves a leader the follower establishes a relationship with the leader and so a leader serving a follower there's benefit a follower serving a leader there's benefit where you have the least amount of benefit and the greatest amount of risk is when you serve your peers. And this is what Jesus is telling them to do. Because if you serve your peers, that means you may appear to give deference to one of your peers. If you serve your peers, equip them and empower them something that everyone else sees, and then you don't get seen. If you serve a peer, you're voluntarily subordinating yourself, at least for a moment, to that peer. And so the whole concept of sideways service is that if you're going to function on a ministry team, you've got to be willing to serve one another. Now, I've seen this play out a lot. You, many times, ministry leaders in a church will, have, will maintain a relationship with the boss. They'll maintain a relationship with the pastor. And the pastor thinks everything's good because that person says the right things, that person loves the pastor, the pastor loves them, they love each other, they serve each other, everything seems fine, but that same person can't go out and get along with all their colleagues on their ministry team. It's not enough to maintain a relationship with your pastor if you're on a ministry team. You have got to serve the people that you're, along, that you're working alongside with. You've got to learn to serve everyone. You've got to be engaged with everyone. And so the idea of the sideways servant is that you learn on the org chart not to just serve up and down, but you learn to serve side to side. You serve that person who is your colleague and your peer. I think um, another another portion of your book that, and and I think it's a tremendous way to close out this interview um, in your book, you talk about the 10 uh, principles for managing conflict. Um, and so I wonder if you'd just briefly share what those uh, 10 principles are, but also how those 10 principles work together in what you're talking about, working together and serving each other. Yeah, conflict is inevitable. And I have one chapter that just talks about that. Conflict is inevitable. And conflict is not necessarily bad. Conflict is simply when you have, you know, the same claim or, or two different claims laid on the same resources. So you have two different people, you know, they're claiming a different outcome. They're claiming a different, you know, you, you have two different opinions about what we're having for dinner tonight. Well, by definition, that's conflict. So conflict's not necessarily bad, but the way we manage conflict determines whether or not it becomes healthy or not. And so I do give 10 principles uh, here. We could talk for a really long time about those, but I'll mention them. Uh, number one, create a context for conflict. In other words, before there is a conflict, build healthy relationships, establish policies, um, engage in affirmation, these sorts of things. In other words, don't wait until you have a conflict to have some of those deep dive conversations, but engage in the positive affirmation and those type of things long before you have a conflict. Number two is um, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself in conflict. Um, we have to all act responsibly and own our part when there's a conflict that arises. And uh, 
you know, sometimes when we get in a particular conflict, we make certain assumptions that may or may not be healthy. They may not be right. Adrenaline kicks in. And so it's very important to back up, cool down, and be honest, be honest with yourself. Number three, this is a biblical principle, handle conflicts at the lowest level possible. I had a ministry leader just this week, in the last week, uh, send me a note about a conflict they had with another ministry leader. And the assumption was they wanted me to solve it. And my answer is no, I'm not getting involved in it. You go talk to that person. And I think as leaders, uh, we can really, really equip and train people how to do this by simply refusing to get involved. If it's not, you know, a nuclear situation, you don't have to get involved in everything. It may not end well. It's okay. It's okay. Let them work it out, and then you can coach and guide from the sidelines. But the biblical principle is handle conflict at the lowest level possible. Uh, Two people need to really, they really, really need to work it out. Number four is to grade conflicts, to grade conflicts. It's generally not as good as you think it is, and it's generally not as bad as you think it is. Um, if there's a little issue, don't blow it up into World War III. If there's World War III going on, don't act like it's just, oh, somebody misspoke. You really need to figure out what you're dealing with. That way you know how to respond to it. And so make an honest assessment, and if there's just a, a difference of opinion— you know, you don't need to, uh, you know, you don't need to take artillery in there to blast somebody away who just simply has a different opinion than you do. So grading the conflicts. Number five, number five is to determine what's really at stake. A lot of times there's a presented issue that's really not the issue. And so determining what's at stake, figuring out what the interest of the other person is. A lot of times we argue over a solution. This is the solution that I think needs to happen, and another person's arguing over a solution they need, they think needs to happen. When in reality, there could be fifty solutions that would uh, that would res- resolve the situation. So instead of focusing on what you have determined the solution to be, back up a step and ask what are your interests. Your interests may be, I don't want to be late on Sunday going home again. So how can we fix that? Your interest might be, well, I'm concerned that. You know, we don't have the budget for this. Well, if you don't actually address the interest, you know, your interest is I don't want to be here, you know, late Sunday and someone else is wanting to use the church for, you know, a little meeting they're having after church. And you're arguing over whether or not they should have the meeting or not, when whether they should have the meeting or not is not your concern. Your concern is you don't want to be at the church late. So let's figure out what your real interest is. Your real interest has nothing to do with their meeting. It has to do with you want to go home early. So if you can get to your interests, not just your positions, it really helps uh, with that. Uh, number six, involve the other side in the solution. This is just a good, basic, sound principle of negotiation. Try to let the other person come up with a solution. And uh, I've, I've, as a pastor, have uh, worked on conflicts between team members before where I would help I would help come up with a solution, give it to one of them, and let them present it as if it was their solution. They present it to the other person as if it was. Getting people on your side of the table, letting them be a part of the solution, I think is really important. Number Seven, allowing people to save face. Um, you can't you can't get lost in I told you so. You can't get lost in pointing out how people have gone astray and messed up. Once you come to a solution, celebrate the solution. Uh, embarrassing and humiliating people doesn't really help anything. So it's important to let people save, save face. Nine, stay in control. Uh, a lot of damage can be done when we get out of control. Um, as I said, speak when you're angry and you'll make one of the best speeches you'll ever regret. Uh, so stay in control uh, of your words. And if you can't, then back off, go away, take a break, do whatever you need to do. And then number 10, look to the future. This is not the last thing you're going to deal with with this individual. Look to the future. It may be best just to give up. It may be best just to say fine and let them do what they want to do because you're looking to the future. In other words, you want to walk away from this conflict 
with a foundation for the next conflict. You want to walk away from this conflict with a solid uh, relationship so that you can engage in the work that God's called you to do and you can partner together with this person in the future as a team. Now, I just mentioned those 10. There's a lot more detail in the book. We could probably spend 10, 15 minutes on each one of those very easily. But it is important because if you don't manage conflict, you know, as a leader, if you don't manage your money right, you don't manage your conflicts right, nothing else you do is going to matter. Um, those administrative things are extremely important, and the way we handle them uh, goes a long way to establishing uh, the ministries God's called us to. Wow. There's so much content in, in this particular episode, and so I'm very excited that you would, would join us. Uh, Pastor Sean, share um, some of your experience, share your book uh, with, with the audience. Um, I, I just know that it's going to be a blessing. And uh, some people are going to approach, after listening to this episode, approach the way they do things uh, differently. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, thank you um, for carving out the time to make this happen. Uh, so thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, I did some great, inter uh, not great interviews because I did them. I did some really fun interviews <laughs> several years ago and I got to interview some amazing people. And uh, somebody told me something about interviews one time that I never uh, forgot. This was in the old school. You know, I had a little uh, tape player playing and I had a notepad out. You know, we were doing it that way. And uh, this person told me, they said the best parts of interviews oftentimes are when the interviewer simply just closes the notebook shoves shoves it to the side and then that next question that unscripted question comes out that thing that kind of goes off the rails is where you learn the most so i just want to give you that last opportunity oh. <laughs> anything else you want to unscripted. talk about before we go <laughs> you know i i can't i can't think of anything um off the top of my head uh, not for this moment um, but, well, in your experience, um, so you've, you've had several, uh, several ministerial roles. You, you've been an assistant pastor, you've been a lay person, you've been a senior pastor, um, you're an author. Uh, so you've operated in several different offices, if you will. Um, how do you navigate, um, you know, we're talking about church work, so this is this is applicable. How do you navigate that change, not only with your schedule, uh, but with your family, um, and even with your peers? Yeah, it's really hard. You have to you have to be attentive to that. And just a very practical situation, um, navigating between. Uh, sent me sermons that they want to publish because you've got to adapt you've got to switch hats you can't you can't write like you preach and likewise you can't preach like you write those are two very different competencies and so this is kind of maybe a little off track of your nature of your question but as far as kind of shifting roles i have tried to develop the competency of preaching as a different discipline than the competency of writing and those are two very different competencies. And so you've got to think in those roles. Now, I would say just on a very practical note about this, the same thing is true from like we typically differentiate preaching and teaching. Now, whether or not we should or not, it's an entirely different subject. I'm just going to go with it and say we do. So we, we typically differentiate between preaching and teaching. And we, we stereotype people according to their delivery style as being a preacher or a teacher. Now, granted, preaching is generally more inspirational, calling for some sort of response, whereas teaching is informational. Um, I would make the case for all the young preachers that are listening out there, don't settle for being either or. Don't settle for being pigeonholed as, oh, he's a good teacher or he's a good preacher. Why not push yourself? Um, you want to write? Okay, go through the hard rigors of learning good grammar. 
Um, go through the hard rigors of being edited. Go through the hard rigors of doing the time, putting in the effort, so you can switch in and out of those roles. Because just like this interview, I'm just sharing information. If I'm sitting here, if I were sitting here using some preacher voice with this interview right now, it would come across really awkward. You know, it would come across really weird. Uh, you know, if, if we were trying to speak in some exalted, you know, King James English, or it would just be awkward. You've got to learn how to function in the in the environment you're in. And so, whatever those roles are, whatever those roles are, whatever you whatever you're interested in, or you feel God's called you to. Push yourself to prepare for that. Push yourself to prepare for that. Do the hard work. Put in the time. And uh, you can do it if you try and if you work at it. And, uh, uh, you know, Paul uh, said, what did he say? Uh, he said, I'm all things to all men. And to be that, yeah. he had to put in time and effort to, to know the people that he was with, to understand the different cultures that he was a part of. So... It's biblical. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we we believe in this. You know, we we refer to it as anointing. I'm not sure that's the best biblical word for it. Uh, but anyway, this you know this supernatural empowerment. We believe in that. But you know that anointing can fall on a dull blade or it can fall on a sharp blade. I mean, when 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 God's presence comes on you, what has He got to work with? Well, it's you. So. If you feel the presence of God while you're preaching and you feel a great anointing coming on you, but you have a limited vocabulary, you know what's coming out of your mouth? An anointed, limited vocabulary. If you've never read a book in your life, you don't know anything about philosophy, you don't know anything about the world, you don't know anything about anything, well, the anointing comes on you, what's going to come out of your mouth? Well, a little bit about a few things. But if you've prepared yourself and you've stretched yourself and you've done the hard work, then the anointing doesn't fall on a dull, broken blade. It falls on a very sharp blade that can actually do some damage in the harvest to the devil's work. And so you got to figure out what you want to do. I can't think of a better way to close it out. Well, you know, what is one thing? We've talked about working together. We've talked about church work. We've talked about sharing and serving. What's one thing you want the listeners or the audience that hear this episode to walk away from this particular episode with yeah i want i would i would like to encourage everyone to thrive where you're planted your situation is not perfect and it's never going to be perfect you've got to figure out how to use your gifting in your current context right now right now you can't wait until some door opens you can't wait until your leader's perfect you can't wait until your church is perfect that's never going to happen it's never going to happen. You can find purpose right now. And um, you can go to my website, RodneyShaw.com. There's actually a link to a purpose clarifier worksheet. It'll walk you through talking about your, your, uh, your life, uh, talking about basically what I refer to as uh, the three C's, your, your, your context, where you're serving at, your constitution, those things that make you who you are, and your calling, where those three things inter over lap and intersect is where your purpose is purpose is not something purpose is not something that you just run across it's something that you discover where you are now so get with it god can use you right where you're at amen so get yourself a copy of the church work if you haven't already i believe it's available on amazon pentecostal uh publishing house um and certainly check out this incredible man of god's page but well, I can. Can I give an announcement here? This is the first. Okay. All right. First announced on your podcast. Okay. Two two things actually. First of all, um, there's a workbook that just got printed for church work, and it's about to be released. But even more exciting than that, the Spanish edition of church work is coming. It uh, has been translated and is being proofed now, and it will be out very soon. So all of uh, if you know Spanish speakers, here it comes. So you heard it first right here. <laughs> Praise God. Well, Pastor Shaw, thank you again. This has been absolutely insightful. It's been tremendous. And, and so I'm very excited. So thank you again for joining us on Apostolic Theory.
This podcast is made possible because of listeners like you who are willing to bridge the gap. We now have a sponsorship program on our Anchor website in which you can become a monthly sponsor of $1, $5, or $10 a month. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook.